Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. The Westminster Confession tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That that is the the end purpose, the end goal of man. To commune with God, to, to enjoy that precious relationship and to live for His glory and make much of Him. And we see that this is something that is very much true as we look through the pages of Scripture. In fact, we don't have to go so far as just look at the first couple of chapters of Genesis And we will see this right in the Garden of Eden. As God made Adam and Eve, and when there was no sin and no suffering or anything of that sort, man lived in perfect communion with God. It was a wonderful relationship that was there. And much joy and enjoyment, and they lived for the glory of God. And yet we know that man still sinned against God. And Adam and Eve, they were cast out from the garden. Cast out from the presence of God, so to speak. And ever since then, as sin came into the world, and as death and suffering and all of that came into the world, we see that there was a break in that relationship between God and man. That wonderful communion that was enjoyed in the garden was broken because of sin. And really then, as we look through the rest of the pages of Scripture, as we trace God's plan of redemption, much of this plan of redemption is about how God will reverse the curse of sin and death And how he will bring sinful man back to himself so that man can enjoy this wonderful communion with God again. Where man can be in the presence of God and live in this enjoyment of God and live for his glory. And even as we've looked at Genesis, after the garden, after man is kicked out of the garden, we see sin becoming more and more rampant till we get to the Tower of Babel where all of humanity is uniting together to rebel against God. And we see that even though God judges them, God's plan will still move forward. He will still have a people for himself who will be reconciled to himself, who where God will dwell with his people. And to continue on that plan, we saw how God then focuses on a man named Abraham. And he gives him certain, uh, makes a covenant with him and gives him certain promises, which essentially is God's plan of salvation in an ultimate sense. And that plan of salvation, those covenant promises, then pass from Abraham to his son, 
Isaac. And then for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at how that plan of salvation, that plan of blessing, has been passed on from Isaac then down to Jacob. And particularly last week we saw that that Isaac got the blessing from, pardon me, Jacob got the blessing from Isaac. And at the same time we saw the other son, Esau. Esau was a godless man. He tried to do different things, but he had no interest in God whatsoever. And we saw him in this hopeless condition, even though there was remorse in his life, he had no desire for God. And so this this is where we find ourselves this morning. As the attention now will begin to focus on this blessed son named Jacob. This person that God has chosen to continue his plan of redemption. And what we see in this section is really another stunning display of God's grace. It's a stunning display of God's grace, both in showing really the, the, the significance and the graciousness of God's presence with sinful people. We will see something of that being revealed here, of how God is going to slowly establish His presence with sinful people. And something of the foundation of that and the graciousness of God in doing that is revealed in this passage. And I trust that once again, we will be amazed at God's grace in doing this. And we will even recognize our own undeservedness with regards to God doing this for us who are believers. I've titled this morning's sermon as God appearing to Jacob in Bethel. We're going to look at this section under two headings. God's amazing revelation in verses 10 through 15. And Jacob's ambivalent response in verses 16 through 22. God's amazing revelation in 10 through 15. And Jacob's ambivalent response in verses 16 through to 22. So let's look first at God's amazing revelation. Verse 10 says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now this journey from Beersheba to Haran is is the beginning of Jacob's journey as the, the next patriarch in line, where God is going to do a work in this new patriarch named Jacob. And really what you see in this journey is that Jacob is going to retrace the steps of his grandfather Abraham from many years ago. Because if you remember, Abraham came from Haran and came all the way and settled in Beersheba via Bethel. And Jacob is going to retrace that journey 
But unlike Abraham at the start of his pilgrimage as a patriarch, where Abraham moves closer and closer and finally moves into the promised land, we see this patriarch named Jacob, he starts off his journey by having to move away from the promised land. It's almost like he's, in, he's going to be in exile for a while. Now you have to think of why this is happening. Remember, Jacob had deceived his blind father, Isaac. And he stole the blessing from his older brother, Esau. And now Jacob is running away from the land like a fugitive because Esau is threatening to kill him. And then he was told to go to his uncle Laban's house for a while to seek refuge there. So yes, Jacob is the one who is blessed. He has gotten the blessing, but he will also suffer the consequences for his sin. And if you think about Jacob here, as we saw in the previous chapters, you know, Jacob was someone who was close to, always close to home. Unlike his brother Esau, who was, you know, he loved the wild outdoors. He was the adventurous kind. The one who was away from home a lot. But here we see Jacob, the one who was always close to home. Because of his scheming, because of his deception, Jacob has to run away from home, like a fugitive. Away from his family and friends. Away from his security and comforts. And even the future seems so uncertain for Jacob. Because he's just running to his uncle Laban's household. But there are still so many unknowns. So the question is this. As Jacob is running away from the promised land, for fear for his life, the question comes, so then is anything going to come true of the blessings given to Jacob? Because he, he's really moving away from all this. And so Jacob is alone. He's homeless. Without the comforts of his home. Without the riches of his home. Without the protection of anybody. He's in the middle of this unknown place. Perhaps in the, you know, in the midst of foreign people. So he's, there's even dangers for his life. And it's in this state, as he's going, he's moving to Haran, to his uncle's place, he comes to rest to, out in this open space. Look at verses 11, 12, and the first part of verse 13. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Now taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder 
set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord God, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Let's just stop there for a moment. So one of the things that we need to note here, or the first thing we can note here, is that Jacob, even though he's in this predicament, all by himself, fearful of his life, without even a home, you know, having to sleep outside, he is not particularly seeking after God. No, he's just, he's just seeking to keep himself safe at this point. All because of the sins that he's committed. And yet, it is to this sinful, deceitful, lying Jacob, God takes the initiative to reveal himself in a dream. I mean, Jacob is, is sleeping here, and he's running scared for his life. There's nothing he can do to bring God to himself. And yet God graciously appears to him while he's sleeping to signify this is all of God's doing. And in his dream, Jacob sees a ladder. Really, it's, it's not quite a ladder, but a, but a flight of steps. A, a, a stairway that reaches down all the way from heaven to earth where Jacob is. So the top of it reaches the heavens, and the bottom of it is right on earth where Jacob is. And there are angels going up and down on, this, on, this, on these stairs. When you think of angels, we understand angels are the messengers of God, messengers who do the will of God. So this picture of the angels going up and down this stairway, it's showing that this is the, the connection point, the communication stairway, so to speak, between heaven and earth. And it says there in verse 13 that the Lord stood over it, saying he's the God of Abraham and Isaac. Some of you may have in your footnote, as a footnote in your Bible, where it can also be translated as the Lord stood beside him. And I think that's, you know, given the context, that's probably a more accurate translation. That rather than the Lord standing over this, this stairway, the Lord is standing at the bottom of the stairway on earth beside Jacob where he is sleeping. So the picture is this, that the Lord God has come down from heaven and he's revealing himself to Jacob and is with Jacob. Now if you remember back in Genesis 11, the tower builders of Babel, in order to make a name for themselves, they tried to build a tower, a stairway of sorts, 
to bridge the boundaries between earth and heaven by their own wisdom and by their own strength. But they failed in their efforts miserably and God judged them and there was confusion of languages and they were scattered across the earth. And now, God himself is graciously coming to this sinful man named Jacob and showing him that God and not man is the only one that can bridge that connection between heaven and earth. And it is even showing that he is a God that is not far away in the heavens, separated from all that is happening on earth. But he is a God who has come down from heaven, who is personally interested in the things of earth and particularly interested in Jacob as he's standing right next to him where Jacob is sleeping on earth. Now at this point, Jacob has every reason to fear the Lord God because it says this is the Lord God of his Father who has come to him. And so Jacob should have every reason to fear. Why? Because he's just deceived his father. And stolen the blessing from there. And even used the name of the Lord in vain. Saying, oh, it's the Lord that has granted me success. And so at this point you would expect God to just curse Jacob for his deception and his sinful ways. And, and just cast him out, almost like in the Garden of Eden. But what you see here instead is that God blesses Jacob. Yeah, that's right. He blesses Jacob. Look at verse 13 and 14. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So this time, this is not secondhand blessing now. It's the Lord himself who is appearing and blessing Jacob with the same covenant blessings of Abraham. You know, validating, yeah, those blessings, they are yours, Jacob. And the same three elements you find here, God telling Jacob, land, seed, and blessing. He's telling Jacob, even though you have nothing now, even though you have to run away from the promised land right now, Jacob, you and your descendants will one day inherit this promised land of Canaan. Jacob, even though you have no children, for that matter, you, have, you don't even have a wife, but God is promising you still will have Numerous descendants. 
And God says the point of all this is that in and through Jacob's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it has global implications. Because this is God's plan of salvation slowly being acted out. So while it might look like Jacob, you know, when he's running away from the promised land, that he's running away from the blessings of God, God is reassuring Jacob that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant indeed belong to Jacob. Now in verse 15, the Lord explains so what that therefore means for Jacob's immediate future. You know, it's like the Lord is saying, Jacob, as bearer of the covenant promises of Abraham, this is what it means for you as you set off on this dangerous journey from the promised land, like an exile. Yes, it is because of your sin, but this is what it means for you because you're the bearer of these covenant promises. The Lord says first, behold, I will be with you. That's essentially what the dream was showing. God's presence will be with you. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of heaven, who is involved in the affairs of this world, is going to be with you in a special way. He is committed to you. He will not abandon you, even though you are now going to leave the promised land. You will not be alone. God will go with you. The second thing that God says, and it's closely related to God's presence, is God's preservation. I will keep you wherever you go. The picture is of a good shepherd who cares for and protects his helpless sheep in every circumstance. It's the idea that God will sustain you and, and take care of you. You know, Psalm 121, we looked at this psalm a few months ago when Brian Harper came and preached. But just look at verses 5 through 8 in Psalm 121. It really talks about this you know, fleshes out the idea of as God being the keeper. It says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So it's that, that God will sustain him and, and take care of him. Here's how one commentator put it. He says, The keeper of Israel guarantees the lives of those who are exposed and defenseless. In the Cain narrative, Cain and Abel narrative, that is, the murderer refused to be the keeper for his brother. Remember when God spoke to Cain, Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? 
So he's saying, in the Cain narrative, the murderer refuses, refused to be the keeper for his brother. But now this fugitive from his brother has a better keeper, the Lord himself. End quote. Yeah, the Lord himself is going to be Jacob's keeper. The Lord will be with him and will keep him. And thirdly, God promises restoration. He says, I will bring you back to the promised land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Jacob, you won't be a fugitive all your life. You won't be running for your life and away from the promised land. No, I will see to it, Jacob, that you will be brought back, restored back to the promised land. And all that I have promised to you will be fulfilled. I mean, this is an amazing revelation that God gives to Jacob. While he's alone and homeless and fearful. But I want you to think again as to why Jacob is in this position of being homeless and alone and afraid and fearing for his life and running away from the promised land. Why is he in this position? Because of his own sin. Because of his own deception. Because of his own lies. He didn't wait on the Lord. He tried to gr grab things for himself and these are the this is part of the consequences of his sin. And then on top of that, as he's running away, he's not seeking the Lord. No, he's just somehow seeking to save his own skin. But that's, you know, I don't want you to miss the amazingness of this section. That's why it's just so amazing. Because instead of being cast out or cursed by God... God takes the initiative to commit himself to this rotten scoundrel. I love that. See, God reveals himself to Jacob, promises to be with him, to take care of him, and to bring to pass all of the covenant promises and that plan of salvation through him. Here's another commentator, quote, Jacob's encounter with God was unsought for, unexpected, and undeserved. He had done nothing in his life to earn God's favor, quite the reverse. He was a liar and a cheat, end quote. I mean, this is a picture of God's amazing grace. I mean, for those of us who are believers, can't we all relate to this? I mean, we were all lost in our sin, not seeking after God. And yet this awesome God of the entire universe came down and revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean... Can we thank God that he didn't wait for us to kind of turn around and seek after him and have an interest in him? No, if God had to wait for us to turn to him, 
he'd be waiting for all of eternity. We would never seek after him. We would say, yes, that is gracious enough that God has revealed himself to us. But, but that's not all. God in Christ has bound himself to sinners like you and me. Promising to preserve us to the end where finally we will be with him. That is pure, undeserved grace. You know, as we look at the life of Jacob, we will see a lot of sin. I mean, he's a scoundrel of a man. And yet, it is to this sinner that God has committed himself to and God will transform him over time. And it's the same for us. I mean, if someone were to keep a record of our life, maybe even write a book for everyone else to see, just what's happened every single day, you know, all the secrets, everything, of every single day, even just this past year, our thoughts, our intentions, our motives, everything put together for someone to read. Oh, it wouldn't be a very glamorous read. And yet, it is to sinners like us that this glorious and righteous God has taken an interest in. Where he has revealed himself and bound himself to us in Christ, never to abandon us, but has promised to keep us to the end. You know, he will never say to those of us who are believers, Oh, you're too filthy for me now, and I can't be with you anymore, and I will abandon you. No, in fact, this glorious and righteous God. It's the very fact that he will never leave us. It's the very fact that his presence will be with us. It is that very presence that is now transforming us from the inside out, making us more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the amazing God that has revealed himself to us and has bound himself to us to be with us, to preserve us to the end. The same God of Jacob is also our God. So God has graciously revealed himself to Jacob while he's alone and afraid with nothing and makes known his purposes and plans, assuring Jacob, that God will be with him no matter what. So how does Jacob respond to this? And this brings us to our second point, Jacob's ambivalent response. Jacob's ambivalent response. Verse 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
So Jacob wakes up from his sleep and from his dream and he's astonished by God's self-revelation. And there's a mixture of surprise and adoration and, and terror that comes over him. He's surprised that the, the Lord God of his fathers has come to him personally. And then he recognizes something of the awesomeness of this God. And he's, as he's grappling with that, he's also afraid because he recognizes something of the sinfulness of himself. And you know, and yet, this section also tells us how Jacob also knew very little about the Lord God of his fathers. See, because Jacob thinks that because God has revealed himself in this particular place, he says, then he calls this particular place the house of God and the gate of God. The house of God, meaning that this physical place is where God dwells, where his presence is. And the gate of God, meaning that this physical place is the access point or the entryway to God, where heaven and earth meet. See, but the point of God's revelation was not the place at all. God's revelation was not so much that God would be in that particular place, but it was more so that God would be with Jacob wherever he went. See, big difference between the two. Jacob is emphasizing the place. He's saying, oh, this place, this place, this is the house. Because God has revealed himself to him, he's saying, oh, this is the house of God, or the gateway, the entryway to heaven and to God. When God is saying, no, I will be with you wherever you go. You know, it's quite likely that Jacob is influenced by the pagan culture around him. In the pagan culture of those days, there was this thinking that the gods ruled over a particular place. And so, so long as you stayed within the boundaries of that particular place, that local god would protect you. And so by implication, Jacob is saying, this particular place is the dwelling place of the Lord God. And this is the entryway to the Lord God. But if he moves away from this place, he's moving away from God. That's the implication. Jacob has a lot to understand about this God. Now verse 18 and 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. 
So Jacob wakes up uh, and eagerly, right, right first thing in the morning, early in the morning, he takes the stone that supported his head and he sort of puts it straight. He erects it like a pillar and he pours oil over it to dedicate it. And so this stone pillar is now erected as a, as a monument to the stairway to heaven. I mean, symbolically, it almost looks like that stairway and, and the presence of God standing there next to him, this pillar of a stone. And it's even marking out this place as a significant place now. But you know, what's interesting is, unlike his forefathers, where God revealed himself, Jacob does not build an altar to the Lord in response to God's revelation. He simply erects a stone pillar. Now in those days, the pagans would erect stone pillars to their gods to, uh, to sometimes even mark out that place for religious purposes. And in fact, this practice of erecting stone pillars would later be condemned in Deuteronomy 16 verse 22. So the fact that Jacob doesn't build an altar to the Lord after God reveals himself and instead just simply erects this stone pillar, it is quite likely that while Jacob does have a sense of devotion to the Lord God, it is still through the lens of the pagan culture around him. There is much growing that Jacob has got to do with his understanding of the living God. And it says the name of that place was called Luz. So previously it was called Luz, but Jacob renames that place Bethel. Beth means house, El means God, house of God. So he, he renames that God, renames that place, house of God, Bethel. Now having had this encounter with the Lord, Jacob now makes a vow to the Lord. Look at verse 20 through to 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. Now there's much debate about whether this vow should be seen in positive light as though Jacob is making a commitment to the Lord in light of what God has revealed to himself. That since God has said these things, Jacob is making this commitment or to see it in the negative light where essentially Jacob is bargaining with God that if you will do this, I will commit to you. 
I lean towards the second that this vow should be seen more in the negative light, both just with the context of how Jacob is thinking and even moving forward when we think of how Jacob continues to respond to God as he has much to grow in his understanding of God. See, unlike his father Abraham or Isaac, who did not even speak in response to God's revelation, they simply worshipped. Here, Jacob responds with a vow. He's the only patriarch who does that. And really, if you, if you look at the content of Jacob's vow, it's very self-centered. It's not about God and his purposes. It's all about Jacob. Because if you go back through 20 to 22, in all that he says, his concern is still personal safety and, and food and clothing and, and my return to my father's house in peace. That's all he is thinking of. I mean, think about this. God has just said, I will be with you and keep you wherever you go. So by implication, that would mean, Jacob, you will be taken care of every single way. Besides the Abrahamic promises that were given to Jacob, it was not just for Jacob's benefit, for his own selfish reasons. It is about God's purposes which will have a global impact to bless all families of the earth. So it's something that, you know, what God is doing, the picture is more of a global impact. And yet for Jacob, it's just me, myself, and I. My clothing, my well-being, my security, and will I go to my father's house in peace? See, even though God has said, I will be with you and keep you and bring you to the land, Jacob is not trusting God with his word. He's essentially saying, God, if you will actually be with me where I go, and you're not simply restricted to this place, then prove it to me. He's essentially saying, God, if you keep your word and actually keep me safe where I will go and actually provide me with everything that I need, then you can be my God. And I will be committed to you then. You know, one theologian used the illustration of a baby to, to explain this and I, I, I think it really gets the point across well. You know, he said, it's like a baby saying, if the baby could speak, if you give me milk, if you change my nappies, if you keep me warm, then you can be my mother or my father. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous thing to say, right? I mean, you, you don't just become a mother or father just because the baby decides that. But that's what essentially Jacob is saying. If you do all this, then you get to be my God. No, we can't negotiate with God. God is God. And God being our God is not up to us. It's up to God himself. Yet here, Jacob the schemer is trying to 
negotiate with God. God, you do these things for me, then you know what? I'll, I'll do this for you. You know, before we condemn Jacob for treating God's revelation and his promises and his grace to him this way, you know, we need to recognize that we can also sometimes treat God this way, can't we? I mean, we only need to check our response when life doesn't go our way. And, we are, and then we are upset at God. Well, that kind of response just shows that it's not different from Jacob who said, you can be my God so long as you do the things that I want for me. Another commentator put it this way, quote, Before condemning Jacob, we should look to ourselves. If God will bless and protect us, our families, our business, then we will worship and serve him. Such is not faith before the fact, but fact before faith. It requires no faith at all to practice such a religion. When things go well, we take credit. When they go wrong, we blame God. End quote. So what we see here is just how merciful and patient God is to a sinner like Jacob. Just like he is to us. Now I've mentioned in the beginning that this passage also sets up the foundation about God's presence and his dwelling. And I want us to consider that as we come toward the end of this sermon. The concept of, of Bethel, the concept of the house of God, signifying God's dwelling place or God's special presence. As we move through the pages of Scripture, God's presence now would come to dwell in the tabernacle. And later in Israel's history, this, this, from this temporary tabernacle structure, because Israel was wandering, it would then become the temple of God when the people of Israel move back into the land. And there's a more permanent special dwelling place of God in the temple. And yet what we see there is also there's constant reminders and constant barriers to the presence of God. Even as there's the curtain to the most holy place. And even to come before God, there's the regular sacrifices that need to be made because man was still sinful. And yet as we move into the New Testament, you know, Jesus one time says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was talking about his, his body. But by saying that, he's also saying that God's presence now dwells with him, with Jesus. Jesus is now the temple of God. 
And so, when we think of Jesus on the cross, and as he's lying there, and as he dies on that cross, we know that the curtain in the temple that divides the holy place and the most holy place gets torn. That reminder that there was a separation between God and man. Here, because of Jesus' death, that barrier is torn. And that barrier is not removed by man, but it is removed by God because the curtain is torn from top to bottom. God is the one who tears down that barrier. The barrier is torn from heaven to earth. And God's presence is now available, accessible to sinful man through what Jesus has done. And so when we come to what Jesus says in John 1 verse 51, we read that passage this morning, that account with Nathaniel. And Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man. Let me just get that passage. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's making an allusion to that stairway that Jacob had in his dream. And what is Jesus saying here? Who's the Son of Man? That's Jesus himself. So Jesus is saying, now I'm the stairway. I'm the one who will bridge the gap between heaven and earth. I'm the connection point, the access point. The gateway to heaven. The dwelling place of God. Jesus is the one who unites sinful man and holy God. And that's why Jesus came down in the form of a man. He was God-man. On the one side, he's connected to man. And on the other side, he's connected to God, and he's the center point. He's the point where God's judgment for sinful man fell. He's the point where God's love for sinful man is expressed on that cross of Calvary as Jesus bore the wrath of God. Jesus is the bridge to God. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friend, if you're here this morning, let me tell you, you can try all you want by your own effort to get to God, to be acceptable in God's sight. You will never reach God. Because the separation between you and God is great. 
And yet, Jesus has come and stood between God and man. And all that was meant to fall on you as a sinner fell on Jesus. So that he could not just provide a way, but he is the way to God the Father. Friend, if you're here this morning, let me tell you, Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. So turn to him and trust in him and believe in what he has done on the cross. And if you say you believe, then turn away from your sin and continue to trust in him and follow hard after him. For those of us who are believers, well, this section should remind us of the grace of God in revealing himself to us when we did not seek him the grace of God in promising his presence with sinful people like you and for me. And you know, the wonderful thing is this God-withness, if you want to, if that's even a word, is the story of redemption. Because finally, those of us who are his people, in the end we will see that in the new heavens and the new earth we will be in loving communion with this great God enjoying him forever and living for his glory so as we understand that that this is what God has done in and through Jesus Christ may it cause us not to Not to live with conditions saying, God, if you do this, then I will be committed to you. But we would just see the grace that is shown to us and the fact that he is with us to be wholly committed to him and live for his honor and his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you never change. You are the holy, holy God. You are the righteous God and the just God. And you, yet you are the merciful and gracious and patient God. We thank you for revealing yourself in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that through him, we've been reconciled back to you and we have the confidence that we will be preserved as we live this life on this earth and we will be with you forever in eternity. Lord, help us, therefore, to live lives committed to you even now, making much of Jesus, and even having the heart to tell others, those who are lost, about this good and gracious God. And we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.